timeless truths, John chapter 12. Just as we look through the passage, just some simple things I want to call attention to uh, that as, as a reminder, even as we look back at this uh, time in the uh, life of the... Uh, first of all, the scene. As, as we looked at the triumphal entry, uh, this, he's, he's, remember they had just had that dinner, that private dinner there at Simon the leper's house. And so they're going from this private dinner to this very noisy parade. Uh, it appears that, uh, that uh, the, the parade itself uh, was very spontaneous. Uh, it appears that the, the um, if I can look here real quickly there in John 12, uh, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard the feast here is the uh, Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him. It seemed to be rather spontaneous that they came out and entered into this uh, great acclaim of this very noisy parade. Uh, this is the only time Jesus allowed a public demonstration uh, in his, on his behalf. And then in the fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. In fact, turn back to Zechariah. I want you to see that. Uh, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah is just before that. Right? So go back to Zechariah chapter 9. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Notice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. There's, four, there's really four things that, that jump out at us from Zechariah 9.9. First of all, he is a king, he is just, he is bringing salvation, and he is humble. These are all his entering in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the way that he entered, then how he came is a fulfillment of the prophecy here in Zechariah 9 9. Now, Zechariah is only second to Isaiah in the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And as you know, Isaiah is a very long book. Well, Zechariah is not as long as Isaiah, but it has, it's second in the prophecies concerning uh, the Messiah himself. Uh, who was Zechariah? Well, Zechariah was one of the prophets. Uh, he was contemporary with Haggai and Ezra. I think those in uh, Mitch's class have been talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was sent back uh, with 50,000 uh, those who had been in that captivity to rebuild the temple. Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah were two prophets that God sent. It was kind of like the good cop, bad cop. Haggai said, you sinners need to repent and rebuild the temple. And Haggai said, you need to rebuild the temple, or Zechariah said, you need to rebuild the temple because we're looking ahead to the Messiah. So he, had the, he, he, he continually had these prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus entering, this triumphal entry, was a fulfillment, specifically, of prophecy. The participants, as we notice, these, these are, there's one group I didn't put in there, but these four are the primary four groups. There's the people. The people rejoicing. Hosanna, here he comes. He's rejoicing. They were excited. As they looked toward him, they, they took the palm branches. They waved them in the air. They were throwing them down uh, for a young colt there to walk across. They, they, they were rejoicing. They, they, the words that they repeated there were from the Messianic Psalm 118, which, by the way, incensed uh, the uh, Pharisees, uh, that they would even be using that psalm to, to uh, repeat in specifically directed toward Jesus as he came on the triumphal entry. The Pharisees, they were complaining. Well, they hated Jesus. They had already uh, set the, the tone. They had already made the plans with Judas. But they hated Jesus. And they, they were going to wait till after Passover to arrest him. 
Now, we'll, I'm going to talk a little bit later about his hour had come. But the, the point is this. Uh, God, they had their plans, but God had a better plan. And uh, they were, they, and as, as you notice their words there, as they talked about, see, the whole, the whole world's going after him. Well, they were just overwhelmed with this, and so they were afraid uh, to this. So they, they, were, they were complaining. Uh, the Messiah, uh, we find in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. This is, a, this is the same time period. Like I said, John has kind of an abbreviated, and the other Gospels sometimes add more to it. But as Jesus, as he rode and he neared, he began to weep over Jerusalem. He began to weep over the people. They were a sheep without a shepherd. So the Messiah was weeping. And then we have the Greeks. This is, this is really exciting. Because this, the Greeks here prompted verses 23 to about 26 of this mini, mini message that he gave. The Greeks were seeking. As it says, it says there in John chapter 12, verse uh, 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Apparently, these Greeks were proselytes. In other words, they were proselytes to Judaism. And they were coming to enter in and participate in the feast itself. So they, there, were, there weren't just Jews here, but there were individuals who had been converted to Judaism. And they had heard the stories. This was not, all the things that Jesus did was not inside of a box. It was very open, very plain. This is why the people had this uh, acclaim and praise for him. Because this was a well-known uh, fact of the miracles he had done, of who he who he was, who people claimed him to be, etc. So the Greeks heard about this, and, and I think it's interesting, it, this, he, they didn't go to the Pharisees, they didn't go to the religious leaders and say, take us to Jesus. They found out one of the apostles, in this case Philip, uh, and said, take us to Jesus. And Philip went and found Andrew, and of course Andrew then brought him to Jesus. The Jews were looking for a sign, but the Greeks were looking for an interview. And this prompted, I believe, the message that I want to look at, and, and the, the, that I'm just going to draw attention to three timeless truths that Jesus relates here uh, in these next few verses. So, verse 22, Philip came, told Andrew. In turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Verse 23, then. This prompted, I believe, this message. He said here, verse 23. But Jesus answered him, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a, man, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, or serves me, him my Father will honor. Jesus, this is the timeless truth. Jesus is the Savior of, savior of the world. Not just Jews. He is the Savior of the world. And this is a theme that has run through uh, John from beginning, even up to this point, even to the, to the end. Remember the first time John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus walking along, he's, he has his disciples, and he sees Jesus coming, and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Profound, prophetic statement. And at, after that point, many of his disciples turned and followed because they realized in John himself, he was to point the way. John was not pointing to himself. He was pointing to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then we have the conversation with Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. He came to talk to Jesus by night. He was one of the Pharisees. He had a lot of questions. And in that process of that conversation, Jesus said to him in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then you have the Samaritan's confession. Remember Jesus was traveling with his disciples through Samaria? 
and they stopped, they, they, uh, the, and the disciples left and went into town to get some food. He was sitting there, standing there by a well, and a woman came to him. She, she had a very poor reputation, and it was very unusual also for a man to talk to a single woman at that time. And uh, he started up this conversation with this woman, and he told her everything that she, about herself, and she realized that this is the Jesus who she'd heard about, and she ran back to the town to tell everybody about what, who she just met. They came out of the town, and this is what they said. We know he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. In other words, we heard you talk about him, but now we see that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Even Samaritans, who were hated and despised. Then John 6, 33, Jesus instructs his disciples as uh, he talks to them. He says, or the bread of God is he who comes from down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And, and, and these, th these, when you think of the disciples, they didn't get it, remember? In fact, even it relates it to us in our passage here. It says there in verse uh, 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. They didn't understand these things, but Jesus can told them continually, time after time after time, but emphasize this message, Jesus, this is a timeless truth. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Uh, even as uh, Kevin has mentioned, uh, we support him as he, he ministers there in Hungary, but even the, the, those in Hungary uh, are prejudiced against gypsies. Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no prejudicial line to draw. This is a timeless truth. Is he has saved you from your sin, ought not, saved, ought not you tell others about your personal Savior? He's the Savior of the world. Why? Are you, the second timeless truth, Jesus had a divine appointment. This was, uh, this was no... Uh, the word in the Greek is, is hora, which we get our word hour. Now, that's a, that has a twofold meaning to it. First of all, there's a divine appointment, uh, God's timetable for his son. In fact, uh, Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. What does that mean, the fullness of time? That's also a re reference to the fact that God had a divine appointment, and when the time was right, he sent his son forth. Well, you know what? God has a, an appointed time, an hour, when he is going to die. And he said, my hour has come. He had a divine appointment. And always, at least consistently through the, the Gospels and refers to that hour, it has a reference to the, act, the divine activity, which refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. John chapter 2, verse 4, addressing his mother. She requested that he, the refreshments that were, they were out of there at the, the marriage feast. And he said to her, my hour has not yet come. The divine appointment, the divine activity has not come yet. In John chapter 3, the authorities sought to seize Jesus while teaching in the temple. Therefore, they thought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. John chapter 8, verse 20, again, while teaching in the temple, his hour had not come. Chapter 12, verse 33, upon request of the Greeks, sir, we would see Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John chapter 12, verse 27, he came to, the, he came to do the will of God. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this divine appointment, this divine activity. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus knew exactly what this meant. And he was fully aware 
that his hour, his time had come. Jesus had a divine appointment. Jesus had a divine appointment. Jesus was not a helpless victim of circumstances. He had a divine appointment. Remember he said, I lay my life down and I take it back up. He was in full control of all these things that were happening to him. This wasn't by chance. His hour, his aura, had come. Jesus had a divine appointment. Third timeless truth. Jesus invites you to follow. Jesus follows this of the illustration of the seed there in uh, verse 24. Now, now, again, verse 24, that seed, that's speaking, of, that's, that's speaking of himself. He's impending death. In other words, he has to die for the seed to grow up and thereby infect or spread the gospel through the whole world. Uh, as you see, then, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, I pro- it produces much grain. So he's speaking to himself, and, and speaking to himself, then he follows up with an application to you and me. The first is his expectations. And sim- simply there in verse 25 is what? Die to self. What does he expect us to do? Die to self. This is, this is interesting. Uh, if you look at, there's two words in verse 25, suke and zoe, or zo. They both are translated life. Now look at verse 25. He who loves his suke, in other words, he who loves his independent self-will, will lose it. And he who hates his suke, he who hates his, safe, his, his independent self-will, will keep it for eternal zoe. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? You and I are inbred and born with a self-will. We want to do it our way. And what he's saying is, if we keep our self-will, you know what? We're going to lose our life. But to surrender and give up and surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ is to have life, in this case, eternal life. He invites you to follow. His His expectation is for you and I to die to self. Love his life in this world. Delights in the world more than God. Hates the life in the world. He's willing to sacrifice all for him. We'll keep it for eternal life. That's that natural life with eternal divine life with him forever. His expectation is die to self. I've told this story before, that, that and, and I've read two different accounts of this story, and I've seen two different emperors' names used. I believe it is, is a true story, even though uncertainty of who the emperor was. But Marcus Aurelius was one of the names I heard. And he erected a statue to himself. It was a statue, not a life-size statue. This statue could be seen from miles away, or from a great distance away. And a great persecution was taking place against Christians themselves. So his requirement was that if you came to Rome, you had to bow down to his statue and proclaim him God. And you had to forsake all your other gods. And for Christians, they had to forsake God himself of course, in denying Jesus Christ. And so great persecution came about because many refused to, but also many compromised and did bow down. Well, there was an entertainment group, a group of acrobats, uh, 40 of them, 40 men, coming to Rome to give some entertainment. And as they came to Rome, of course, they were found and brought to the um, statue and proclaimed that you must bow down and renounce your God. In this case, they had to renounce God and Jesus Christ and pledge allegiance to the emperor as God. They refused. They were giving us another chance. They said, listen, you bow down, or we will make you strip to the skin, walk out on this frozen lake, and wait till morning to see if anybody's left. They still refused to bow down. So they marched them out on the lake, stripped off their clothes. They had to stand there on the lake, on the frozen lake. They were surrounded by Roman soldiers, so they couldn't get away. And uh, as the night went on, 
there was a little bit of a commotion among the 40 wrestlers, and suddenly uh, one of the men broke loose, was able to avoid the guard, ran in, and threw himself down in front of the, uh, the image of the uh, emperor, and he denounced and uh, forsake God and Jesus Christ. The night went on, of course, as in the morning broke. There on the ice, there were 40, 40, not 39, there were 40 dead men. The reason was, one of the soldiers, uh, in the story I read, it said it was the captain of the guard, had heard their testimony, had seen their witness, and when the one had broken away, he took off his soldier's garb, and he walked out and took his place. You must die. His expectation is to die to self. The point there, following Christ requires death to self. When you are forgotten or neglected, and you don't sting and hurt with the, with the insult of the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but you take it all in patient, loving silence, that dying to self. When you patiently and lovingly bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you could stand face to face with waste and folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, you endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you're with, content with any food, any offering, and raiment, and climate, and society, any solitude, any interruptions by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation, or to record your own good works, or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that's dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that, my friends, is dying to self. Are you dead yet? His expectation? Die to self. Notice in verse 6, 26, his explanation. Follow me. Follow me. There in verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be also. I, if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Follow me. Luke chapter 9, you know, or let me, let me say before I introduce these, how can I follow him? You know, it says follow me, so how? What, what do I need to do? Pastor Ken, what, what do I do now? Where do I go now? How can I follow him? Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, this is, by the way, the, the instruction for discipleship. If anyone desires to come after me, to let, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Things you'll notice there, there's action. You follow. You deny. You take. There's action. It's personal. You do this. And it's daily. Take up your cross daily. How, how, do I, how do I follow him? Self-denial. It's not about me. It's about me serving him, following him. Romans chapter 12, verse Verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living servant. Uh, uh, use that illustration of uh, fishing in the stream. Uh, any dead fish can go down the stream. 
A live fish swims against the water, swims against the grain. A living servant. It's interesting what he says there in verse 26, uh, the, uh, the emphasis there on service at three different times. A serves, a servant, and serves. Service. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. This, uh, as he comes, uh, as Peter writes here to believers, he says, But as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Holiness, love what God loves, hate what God hates. Separated from anything that corrupts your moral fiber and is an offense to God. How can I follow him? Holiness. We, we allow ourselves to be infected, affected by, by those things that, that uh, work its way into our very moral, moral fiber itself. It's like having a, an infection that works itself into its mu the muscle and the fiber of your muscle and suddenly when it happens, you lose your strength. Holiness. We cannot minimize the importance of holiness. We cannot compromise the importance of loving what God loves and hating what God hates. The things we read, the things we watch, the things we do, the places we go, the things we say. Follow me. Self-denial, service, holiness. And even as I prayed this morning, as I was, when I pray about the hedge of holiness, I think of two things. I think of our church family. And I think of my, our, our grandchildren. God, keep that hedge of holiness around to protect us from evil, protect us from the evil one, and protect us from evil people. Listen, Satan is actively involved in seeking to destroy you, your testimony. And if he can get to you through your children, through your family, he'll do it. God, protect us. Keep that hedge of holiness round about our church and the ministry here. Holiness. Faithfulness. Proverbs 20, verse 6. Every man will proclaim his own goodness. We all want to pat ourselves on the back, don't we? We want you to know how good we are. But a faithful man, who can find? Steadfast, established, consistent, same every day. But rather we want to uh, tell everybody, rather than just be faithful, know that we can be counted on. These timely truths. He is the Savior of the world. He had a divine appointment. He invites you, you, to follow. Let's pray. Father, we pray even as we come to you with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And we pray, Father, as we think of these timely truths, as we look towards this Passion Week, this Holy Week, the anticipation and, the, and the, the glorious event that happened as you entered into Jerusalem itself. Lord, I pray that we'll be looking for those Greeks who are seeking you, who will be ready to give an answer for that promise, that hope that we have within us. Indeed, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, but you would like to, You'd like to have someone show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Just quickly raise your hand. I'll be more than happy to talk to you after the service. Secondly, you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me. Pray for my service. Pray for my holiness. Pray for my faithfulness. Any others? Others? Father, thank you for the willingness and sensitivity with the hearts. We know even though there are those who do not raise their hand, we know they're thinking on these things. We know that they're working on them. We know that the Spirit of God is alive and well. Oh, Father, I pray you help us to allow the word of God to wash over us and strengthen us and guide us even through uh, the rest of the day and week and the opportunities that we'll jump on them to be able to tell others about Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.